Welcome to Walk in Truth. We're in Esther chapter 3 with a message, Haman schemes, Mordecai stands, but heaven rules. Haman is going to plot his terrible decree against the Jews. Mordecai won't bow, but heaven is overruling all of it with the providential unseen hand of God, but his fingerprints are everywhere. We'll learn more about that today on Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, we want to let you know that this is a listener-supported ministry. Call with your gift at 844-48-TRUTH. That's 844-48-TRUTH. Now, here's Pastor Michael. How many of you have had in your career where you know, you've been working hard and you know, you've been doing great things and maybe it even came to the boss's attention and then there's a time for a promotion and you don't get the promotion. And some dude named Hey Man who goes around the company saying, Hey Man, got the promotion over you. That's a bummer. And that's something hard that, that we face in life. Sometimes we, we do all the right things and we get passed over for the promotion. But you know what? God's timing is going to be perfect, and there's a reason why this all happens the way it does. And Mordecai is going to have to wait, but later he will be promoted. And sometimes waiting, although it's the hardest part, can be God's actual providential hand in your life. Sometimes there's a door that opens, and maybe it's not the best door for you, or it's not the best time for that door. And we don't always see all the layers and the details. That's why we have to trust in the Lord. We have to trust in God's timing and God's providence, even though we always can't make sense of it. And so uh, Mordecai is going to take his stand in this chapter. After these events, he is not promoted. There's another man, and he is Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, some of you are reading your Bible, and you're like, what in the world is an Agagite? Well, there is a backstory to this, and this Agagite is connected to the Amalekites. And I, I think you need to see the backstory, so I want you to turn to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Here's the backstory The children of Israel have been delivered by God's mighty hand, uh, the Passover has happened. They've gone out of Egypt with the treasures of Egypt, God's mighty hand, and God is leading them out. And uh, he has supplied water for them in a miraculous way. And uh, here's what happens. This is Exodus 17. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek, 17.9 of Exodus. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, for those of you who have read the story before, you know that Moses is on the top of the hill. Joshua's down fight, fighting the Amalekites. They've attacked Israel. Israel's vulnerable at this point. And uh, Moses is up on the top of the hill, and Aaron and Hur come up and hold his hands. And when ha Moses' hands are held up in a prayer posture before God, the Israelites prevail down in the war against Amalek. When Moses' hands get heavy and they drop, they start to lose the battle. And so Aaron and Hur come and hold up his, his arms, and Israel ends up getting the victory. And it's a victory over Amalek. Look at verse 13. It says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. So this is to be documented that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. Now many of you know that as Jehovah Nisi, N-I-S-S-I, the Lord is my banner. It could mean standard or flag. I have a friend that studies Hebrew a lot and he believes that you could render this, looking at the Hebrew picture language, the Lord is the one I lean on. And my friend is always tempted to break out into, lean on me when you're not strong. Anyway, we'll stop right there. (laughs) So, I just want you to park here for a second. The Lord is the one I lean on. The Lord is my banner. So they document the victory. Moses leaned on the Lord, if you will. He was on the top of the hill. And the Lord pronounces, he he makes, he swears. Notice, it, it, it says, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek. What's your Bible say? From generation to generation. All right? With that in mind, turn over to 1 Samuel. So you got to go a little bit uh, to the right. 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right, so Israel, their history is unfolding. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. He's the son of Kish, and he is given a responsibility by God to protect the nation against enemies. So this is 1 Samuel 15.1. Samuel said to Saul, 1 Samuel 15.1, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now, that's Exodus 17, what we just read. How he set himself against him on the way, that is, as they were going out of Egypt, while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go in light of this, says the Lord. And remember, he had sworn in Exodus 17, this is later, go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. And of course, this is a radical command by God to wipe out the nation. And this is one of those verses where people struggle. Did God really say to do this? Yes, he did. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. So just skip down uh, for the sake of time. So Saul defeated the Amalekites seven from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Now remember that Haman is an Agagite. This is in all likelihood his origin or his family tree or his genealogy or ethnicity. He comes from King Agag, king of the Amalekites. There are first century writers, Jewish writers, who by way of uh, connecting this name, connected the name Agagites to Romans in the first century. And they did it because they, the Romans were the enemies of Israel. They were occupying Israel in the time of Jesus And so they called the Romans Agagites, some of the Jewish writers of the time. But I believe that right here, and this is what the rabbis would agree with, that actually Haman is an actual descendant of King Agag. And so here's the story. So so he grabs the king alive and uh, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul 
and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, and so forth. Um, so, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I've made Saul king for he has turned back from following me. He's not carried out my commands and Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. A little bit about Saul's pride there. Then turned and proceeded uh, on down to Gilgal. 13, and Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, who? Your God, oops. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Can everybody write in there your Bible? Justification, justification. I did obey. Isn't partial obedience, obedience? I, I, I obeyed 60%. Isn't that good enough? No, obedience, folks, is obedience. So Saul's making his excuses. I did obey and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. It's their fault. The woman that you gave me, she gave to me. That's why I ate it. <laughs> Just write Adam right there. Some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. I'm going to show you one more. Psalm 83. All right, go to the Psalms, a little past Esther. Psalm 83. And I, I want you just to get a full picture of the backdrop of this man's origins, Haman's origins. This is Psalm 83. It's a psalm of Asaph. Skip down to verse 3. Psalm 83, 3. It says they, that is the nations here, make shrewd plans, 83.3, against thy people and conspire together against thy treasured ones. They have said, Psalm 83.4, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let's wipe out Israel as a nation that the name of Israel may be, be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against thee do they make a covenant. The tents of Edom. Now some of the nations are named here. The Ishmaelites. 
You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Pastor Michael Lance and everyone at Walk in Truth wanted to let you know how much we appreciate your partnering with this ministry, whether through prayer, by listening, and of course, financially. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona, where Pastor Michael is the head pastor. We are looking to get Walk in Truth on many more radio stations, but we need your financial support to be able to do that please visit the website walkintruth.com. Click the donate button at the top and that's where you'll learn more and how you can give online or through the mail and become a monthly partner or give a one-time gift. Visit walkintruth.com today. That's walkintruth.com and God bless you for your donation. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance right here on Walk in Truth. show you one more. Psalm 83. All right, go to the Psalms, a little past Esther. Psalm 83. And I, I want you just to get a full picture of the backdrop of this man's origins, Haman's origins. This is Psalm 83. It's a Psalm of Asaph. Skip down to verse 3. Psalm 83, 3. It says, they, that is the nations here, make shrewd plans, 83, 3, against thy people and conspire together against thy treasured ones. They have said, Psalm 83, 4, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let's wipe out Israel as a nation, that the name of Israel may be, be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against thee do they make a covenant. The tents of Edom, now some of the nations are named here that do this. The Ishmaelites, Moab, and the Hagrites, Gebel, and Ammon, and who? There's Amalek. You have Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Notice what they say. They say, for, come and let us wipe them out as a nation. Now, with this backstory in mind, if you return to the book of Esther, when Haman is introduced, this is the history that you have to see. Uh, Haman is an Agagite. And his family line from Amalek is responsible for wanting to destroy God's people. Whenever a people group wants to destroy God's people, God takes that extremely personally. Jesus said to Saul on the road to, to Damascus when he confronted Saul before he became Paul, Saul, Saul! Why do you persecute me? You see, when God's people are persecuted, God takes that personally. And by extension, when they're persecuted, it's as though they were persecuting Christ, but they can't get to Christ, and you represent Christ, so they want to persecute his people. And so Haman, with this history in mind, is a man that comes from these origins. And of course, he's going to continue this. Application point. Sometimes we, don't, uh, sometimes we don't do what God would call us to do. We, maybe it's partial obedience. Maybe we don't completely understand why God has told us to do something. And we either partially obey or we just wallow in our sin. And we don't realize that sometimes what God has called us to do is for multiple reasons beyond even our own lifetime. Do you know that when the book of Esther is unfolding, it's about 600 years removed from the time of King Saul 
And uh, it's way removed from the time of the Exodus. So you're talking about, you could say six generations or more later, the disobedience of Saul still reverberates through the nation of Israel. And one writer put it this way. Past sins have a way of coming back repeatedly to haunt us. Sometimes our children after us. How many difficult ethical decisions over which we agonize for hours would even be confronting us were it not for our past sins? People's lives can become horribly complicated to the point where the wisdom of Solomon is needed to know how to proceed. Yet in many cases, says this writer, the most substantial complications come as the direct byproduct of past sins, close quote. See, sometimes we think that obedience is just about us. Not necessarily. Obedience can bless future generations. And disobedience can reverberate negatively to future generations. And Saul, King Saul, is a perfect example of that. And while our children and grandchildren are not responsible for our sins, they still swim in the consequences of our bad decisions. Amen? It's, it's sometimes it's hard to take. Now, God is so full of grace that if we planted our flag in our generation, even if we didn't have any Christians in our family, and we said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, God can take all of that junk and he can make it all new, right? He can give us a new start. That is the awesome news. To be in Christ, we are new creations. So here's Haman and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, Esther 3.2, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Now all the king's servants at the gate, which was where you did official business in the kingdom, they all bowed down. They paid homage, which can mean in the Hebrew here to some sort of uh, worship. It may not mean that exactly here. It may be an exaggerated bow. But the king had sent out some sort of command that all the officials at the gate, the city officials, the servants of the king, were to bow to Haman. That's how high he had been elevated. I don't know if it was an inner office email. I don't know, you know how the word got out. But this was the command from the top. Everybody is to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But one man said no. Now, the, we mentioned in the opening of the book that the book of Esther is uh, not exactly, the, the heroes are not exactly like the book of Daniel because it seems like there's a little bit more compromise going on with Mordecai and Esther being in Persia and kind of seeming to go with the flow sometimes. We don't have all the details. But we know that in Daniel 3, it was three Hebrew youths who took their stand when everybody else was bowing down before the golden idol. And in Esther 3, Mordecai takes his stand. Daniel 3 and Esther 3. Different situations. In, in the one case of the three Hebrew youths, when they don't bow and they end up in the fire, the Lord shows up and he's real shiny, remember? <laughs> in the fire with them. But in Esther 3, we don't see like a miraculous uh, manifestation in that way. We just see Mordecai take his stand and... Uh, that's all we're told. He will not pay homage. Uh, once again, one writer says, the issue of respect has come before us in the book of Esther. 
Uh, at the end of chapter 1, remember, a decree went out from the king for all wives to respect their husbands. I'm sure that went over big. You know, you get that in the mail. From now on, in this household and all over the Persian Empire, wives must respect their husbands. That should help every household, don't you think? And now the issue of respect is here before us again. Because uh, Haman is going to take this very personally. Uh, Note, the Old Testament does not have a problem with paying appropriate respect to pagan rulers. You can see... uh, Joseph's brothers bow before him in Egypt. You see later in the book that Queen Esther bows before King Xerxes. And so that's chapter 8, verse 3. So what's going on here? Were they asking more of Mordecai? Uh, There have been volumes written, maybe not volumes, but many pages written on the reason why Mordecai won't bow. Because if, if the bowing was simply just paying normal respects to a superior Uh, Mordecai shouldn't really have had an issue with that. So there must be something deeper going on here. The king's servants who were at the king's gate, verse 3, Esther 3, said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? What's, if we could put it in our language, what's the boss going to think when he hears about this? That you you don't follow what he commanded. Now, I throw it out to you, why do you think uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow? He was not an insurrectionist. He wasn't a zealot. He had just revealed a plot to spare the king an assassination. So he wasn't against the Persian leadership. Why in this particular case will he not bow to Haman? Does he simply just not like his name? (laughs) Or is it possible, and I throw this out as my own personal conjecture, is it possible that Mordecai knows Haman's ancestry? Has it come out in some way? Has it been revealed that Haman is an Agagite and Mordecai being a Jew and knowing all these stories knows exactly from Sabbath school where this tension lies. This is a simmering conflict down through the ages that King Saul didn't deal with that Psalm 83 talks about. Could it be that? Remember that Mordecai has told Esther to hide the fact that she's a Jew. Why? Well, he may sense in the court of Persia or maybe around town or maybe through all the provinces that there is anti-Semitism going on. And he's concerned that maybe something's about to blow up in Persia. And if Esther's ethnicity is revealed that maybe she is going to be in some trouble, but maybe it's also because he knows about Haman and he knows that maybe there's been talk that Haman hates Jewish people. This wouldn't be the first time in history that we heard talk like that, would it? That some person in power, especially in Persia, by the way, Persia is modern-day Iran, and the name changed from Persia to Iran in the early 1900s. So Persia is Iran. And uh, we all know what Mahmoud Ahmadinejabi is, (laughs) whatever his name We know what he said, right? Before the UN and other places where he's giving public speeches. Essentially, Israel has no right to exist and should be pushed into the sea and perish. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. This conflict continues right now. And there are people who haven't said it publicly, but that's what they believe. That Israel has no right to exist. In fact, in 48, when... They became a nation again. 
and even in 67, we know that they were being attacked from all sides simply for wanting their little sliver of land in the Middle East that was given to them by God. And by the way, the, all the debate about borders today, I'll say this to you. God does acknowledge borders. He laid out the borders of the Holy Land, so apparently God does believe in borders. I know there's a lot of debates about compassion and what should we do given the situations we're in. And I'm not telling you that it's an easy debate, but I am saying this to you. The God of the Bible does acknowledge borders and nations and countries and even walls that were rebuilt in Nehemiah in 52 days. So we need a biblical worldview, certainly, but we also need the compassion of Christ. And these are complicated times we live in. Yes, indeed, that is a hard topic of discussion today. Well, we're going to see Mordecai take a stand against Haman, a stand which makes him and the Jews a target. And we'll learn more about this as we continue in this series in the book of Esther. Well, folks, I hope this new series is encouraging you to dive into the Bible and get the Bible deep into your heart. You should, in your own time, be reading the scriptures, and you can even read ahead so that when you listen, you can get more out of this incredible story. On that note, remember that you can listen to this and previous teachings on our website anytime when you visit walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Join us tomorrow for more of this teaching in Esther chapter 3 called Haman Schemes, Mordecai Stands, and Heaven Rules. Well, God bless you, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.